I had just finished my first year of teaching high school speech and serving as the debate coach in Marshalltown, Iowa, where the Lord changed my life. And that summer, <clears throat> the youth pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church there asked me to go down with the teenagers to a place called the Bill Rice Ranch. And uh, that was my first exposure. That was the summer of 1981. Brother, you were a lot younger back then, because yeah. I recall. <laughs> what a blessing, and God has been so faithful to us over all these years. You probably knew back in those days uh, a guy by the name of Randy Miller. And uh, Brother Randy was at Maranatha with my wife and I in the early 80s, and their church, Northland Baptist Church, just took us on for support, just and so I look forward to going out there again in the future. The Lord's been so good. As Brother Matt mentioned, uh, I'm a field administrator with Baptist World Mission, and I consider that a, an undeserved privilege and honor. I have been with Baptist World Mission now since I was appointed as a missionary, a single missionary, in fact, at that time, in October of 1985. And... Uh, been serving with them uh, in church planting overseas in Asia and the Pacific uh, all these years since. And the Lord has been so very, very good. Serving as a field administrator the last 13 years going back to the end of the fall of 2010. Well, that's enough about me. Let's, let's try and get enough about Jesus this morning. Amen. I ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You know, years ago, when Mary and I began the ministry of church planting in Singapore, <clears throat> the very first man that I led to the Lord and had the privilege of discipling was a young man named David, David Ng. His surname is a diphthong, just N-G in Chinese, and you pronounce that ng, David ng. By the way, yesterday was the beginning of Chinese New Year. I didn't know if you knew that or not. So my kids have been, uh, their, their Facebook pages have been lighting up with all their friends from childhood over all these years. But David ng was the first young Chinese Singaporean that I had the opportunity to lead to Christ. But in that initial contact with David, he had three questions, the classics. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And he gave me the wonderful privilege of opening the Bible and sitting down with him privately and striving together to answer those questions from the Word of God. But can you answer those questions with the Word of God? You see, the Word of God gives us the answers to those questions. You know, I was taught many years ago that the Bible is God's mind on everything. The Bible is God's mind on everything. And I also like to say that the Bible is God's medicine cabinet equipped to meet every spiritual need in our life. So, where did you come from? Well, the answer to that question 
is clearly presented to us in Psalm 100 and verse 3. Allow me to read Psalm 100 and verse 3 in answer to the question, where did you come from? Psalm 100 and verse 3, the Bible says, Know ye not that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. So, the beautiful truth from that we can derive is, you are not an accident. I am not an accident. I think of that precious little foster child in the arms of Matt and Amy back there. That is not an accident. You are not an accident. I'm not an accident. God made you on purpose. God made me on purpose. So, where did you come from? I came from God. Why are you here? Well, in answer to that question, I turn to Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. And let me read verses 1 and 7 of Isaiah 43. The Bible says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. In verse 7 of Saul, uh, Isaiah 43. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him, notice these words, for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So you were created for God's glory. That's clearly presented there in Isaiah 43, verse 7. So not only are you made on purpose by God, but you were made for a purpose by God, and that's God's glory. It's so important that we get that rooted and grounded in our mind that I was made on purpose by God. I was made for a purpose by God, and that purpose is God's glory. That's the reason for our existence, amen? So two questions now. Is your life bringing glory to God? And secondly, how can your life bring glory to God? That's what we want to address in the morning message. How did Christ bring glory to God? Well, according to our text that we're going to read in just a moment, it was by doing the Father's will. And therefore, how do you think you can glorify God? Same way, my friend, by doing God's will. Let's go to our text, John 17. Let me read the first five verses. John's Gospel, chapter 17. You follow along as I begin in verse 1. John 17, the Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, 
Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning's message is entitled, Our Greatest Purpose, the Will of God. Our Greatest Purpose, the Will of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? O God, unto thee shall all flesh come. And that's the way I come to you, Lord. I ask that you would take my feeble mind, my feeble will, and give me aided strength from heaven on high. I pray that, Lord, you would be magnified through your very word. I pray your Holy Spirit would have absolute rule and reign of every fabric of my being. Lord, my earnest desire as always is to earnestly represent, accurately present the truth to your people. Therefore, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. Lord, teach us the will of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Our greatest purpose, the will of God. Ladies and gentlemen, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ left us an impeccable, impeccable example of perfectly fulfilling the will of God. We can't overestimate the significance of our own personal obedience to this matter of the will of God. May I share with you the words of a man by the name of W.M. Nevins? W.M. Nevins, many, many years ago, in his book on baptism and the Baptists, wrote these words, and I quote Dr. Nevins. How many thousands have been deprived of the realization of their fondest dreams and desires because of their own personal disobedience to the will of God? Only eternity will tell. If we realize the awful consequences of disobedience, we would search the scriptures day and night to learn more fully what the will of God is. Every child of God, whether young or old, must make it a priority to know and do the will of God. Many years ago, there was this missionary mother. She returned back here to America from Africa with three little children. She was taking time to settle them in school. And after she had found homes for them to stay, through the help of the Ladies Missionary Union, she finalized all the arrangements for their care. She made her reservation for her return trip to Africa. One evening... Before returning to the field, a fine group of Christian people gave her a farewell dinner. One of the ladies said to this dear mother, I'm sure you must be very eager to get back to your foreign mission field. For a moment, there was a frown on that missionary mother's face. And then she solemnly, very solemnly, returned her reply, no. I'm not eager to get back to the work. 
You see, the place where I'm going is dirty. There are no electric lights. I'll be cooking on my wood stove. And while I cook, I'll be wiping the tears from my eyes because of my loneliness from my children. I'll desperately be lonesome for them and wondering if any of them are sick. When I remember, it'll be three long years before I see them again. I'll be tempted to tell the Lord, Lord, I can't stand this. I want to go home. No, I'm not eager to go back. But I am more eager to do the Lord's will than anything else on earth. And I'd be more miserable here than over there in Africa. Well, it was the late great missionary statesman, David Livingston, who said, I'd rather be in the heart of Africa, in the will of God, than on the throne of England, out of the will of God. And it's the will of God, my friend, is it the will of God that is as important to you as it was to the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus, for that matter, or even David Livingston? Because if not, then I want you to see from this great high priestly prayer, we're going to look at the first five verses here in John chapter 17, and there's great value we will receive by fulfilling God's will for our lives. So, John chapter 17, we're privileged to hear what Warren Wearsby considers the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer ever recorded in the Word of God. So said Wearsby. So this prayer has three parts. Let me just summarize the entire chapter for us. In verses 1 through 5, our focus this morning, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 1 to 5. That's our focus. Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 to 19, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prayed for all believers. But this morning, we're only going to take time to consider the first five verses. So this is Jesus' prayer. And his was, notice, first of all, a significant request. A significant request. That's where we start. And then we'll end with our significant responsibility. So that's our focus in these five verses. A significant request by the Lord Jesus, and then our significant responsibility. But let's get right into this significant request of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, let me repeat it. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. I want you to consider with me the significance of the phrases, glorify thy son and glorify thou me. Note the meaning, note the moment, and note the motivation of Christ's glory. Let's start with the meaning of that word glory and glorify. See, both words, glory as well as glorify, they're used by John a lot throughout this gospel. John used the noun form of glory 18 times. He used the verb form glorify 23 times. And we want to know, 
What did John mean by the use of these terms? Glory, glorify. This will help us determine the meaning of Jesus' prayer request. So, during Jesus' earthly ministry, let's think about the meaning of glory and glorify as Jesus traversed the earth. You know the verse, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld this glory. So when Jesus traversed the earth, what did the people see? They saw a carpenter from Nazareth. They watched a man turn water to wine. They watched a man feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. They watched a man heal another man who was blind from his birth. They watched a man raise his friend Lazarus from the dead four days later. Eventually, they saw this man betrayed by his own disciple. And then they saw this man publicly betrayed and disowned by another disciple. And finally, the crowd saw this man nailed to a cross and left there suspended to die. And the Gospel of John presents for us many of the ups and downs of this life of Christ. Is this what we think of when we think of the word glory? Normally, the word glory is associated with beauty, splendor, majesty, pomp, circumstance, celebration. But in Jesus' case, the prophet Isaiah said he was despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And in the end, his enemies crucified him. Therefore, where is the glory found in a carpenter using a hammer and a saw? It just seems like an ordinary life to me. That's exactly what John was trying to do. He was presenting for us the same Jesus that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. So God's plan for sending a Redeemer did not involve this grand ceremony of pageantry and, and beautiful celebration. This is just the opposite of the way we think of glory. When we think of glory, we think of the events that will draw a lot of attention to ourselves. But John is saying just the opposite. John is saying God, Jehovah, is not like that. Real greatness does not need to draw attention to itself. Real glory is not found in royal pageantry and splendor. Real glory is different. Therefore, where is the real glory found? 
in Christ. Real glory, get this now, is found in humble service. If I've told you this story before, I pray you'll pardon me and be patient. But during my last seminary at Maranatha, way back in the spring of 1986, I was very busy. It's that last semester of seminary, and you're doing the quizzes and the, the final exams and the term papers and all the collateral reading. And I was going out preaching on the weekends, Brother Doyle, because I was raising support to go to Guam. I needed a wife, amen? She's been with me 37 years now. But, you know, I was busy. And one Saturday afternoon, while I was sitting there at my desk working on another term paper, there was a knock on my dormitory room door. And I so graciously replied, who is it? And slowly the door opened and in walked this short man. I said, Mike, what? I'm busy. What do you want? He said, where are your shoes? I said, why are you asking me? What kind of shoes are you talking about? They're under my bed. They're all under my bed. He said, I, I want what you're going to wear tomorrow. I said, they're, Mike, they're there under my bed. I'm busy. He reached down. He grabbed my wingtips, and he walked out and closed the door behind him. And I think four hours passed until again, I heard this knock. I said, who is it? He walked in, and my heart just crashed. There's that Marine with his two fingers holding my brown wingtips, and they were shined like only a Marine can shine wingtips. I said, Mike, why have you done this? He said, Pat, I know you're busy. I just thought maybe this would help you prepare for tomorrow. Do you know where Mike Fiocchi has been the last 25 years? He's been a missionary in Albania, reaching Muslims with the gospel. And a year ago, May of 2023, 22, my youngest of eight, Elizabeth, a nursing student at Maranatha was with her nursing cohort in Albania helping the ministry of Mike and Jennifer Fiocchi. Humble servants to this very day. And that is glorious. Amen? Humble service. And it was at the cross that we see the real meaning of glory. Because there on that cruel cross, the supreme son of God would accept the abuse, the rejection, and the torture of all of sinful mankind. It was through the sufferings of Christ on the cross that payment was to be made for us. And this was the only way for man to inherit eternal life. It was the fulfillment of this plan that brought glory to the Father. So, during his earthly ministry. But what about before and after his earthly ministry? Where is the glory there? Before and after his earthly ministry. Well, notice the end of verse 5 in our text. Notice the words at the end of verse 5. 
with the glory which I had with thee, note this phrase, before the world was. We must remember when Jesus left heaven in order to begin this earthly ministry, he set aside his glory. The passage which most typifies that whole experience is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In this event, Jesus did not give up his deity or godliness, but rather he added to himself a perfect humanity. That's the essence of the theology in the kenosis. While on earth, Jesus was that 100% man, 100% God, in hypostatic union. After the work of the cross was finished, the need for Jesus' humanity was done. And the total glory, which Jesus originally shared with his Father in heaven before coming to earth, could be restored. And that's what we've read at the end of verse 5. So, the meaning of glory. We've, we've gotten into it now. But let's talk about the moment of glory. We see that referred to also in verse 1 with that phrase. Notice, the hour is come. The hour is come. That's a reference to the hour or the time. And it's repeated throughout John's gospel. It specifically refers to Christ's death or his resurrection. It's what we call the cross work crosswork of the Lord Jesus. It did not come as a surprise to Jesus because he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knew what was behind him. He knew what's before him. And it was the climax toward which his entire life was literally planned in eternity past. It was the Father's will for his Son. We learned earlier that real glory is found in humble service. Well, the real glory of Jesus Christ was this, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords humbled himself to the point where he was willing to take your place and to die as your sin offering in order to satisfy the holy wrath of God the Father for your sin. No wonder Jesus began his high priestly prayer of John 17 by praying for himself. He was approaching the moment of glory. But it would be a moment of glory on anything like you or I or the entire world has ever known. So the meaning of glory, the moment of glory, but there has to be a motivation for this glory. And at this point, you should have a clear answer in your mind to the question, what was the will of God for Jesus Christ? Obviously, the answer to that question is to die for our sin upon the cross. 
and be resurrected three days later. Did he do it? Note carefully verse 4 of our text. The Bible says in John 17, 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. There's another very important question that goes along with this. What was Jesus' motivation for doing the will of God the Father? As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus acknowledged to his parents the very purpose of his existence. Luke 2.49, the Bible records, And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye know not that I must be about my father's business? All the pressures, all the anxieties, hostilities of his life never got in the way of our Savior. Why not? Because he was focused and motivated to do the will of his Father. What motivated Jesus to do the will of God? The answer is revealed in verse 2 of our text. I've just read it. I'll say this again. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Say it again. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Someone has said the love gift of God to the world is Christ. While the love gift of Christ to the Father are believers. You and me. So, where have we been? Well, we've, we've talked about this, this very important issue the significant request of Christ. Now we get into our significant responsibility as believers. And one thing is for sure, you and I will never, ever, ever be called upon to become the Savior of the world. That's never going to happen, amen? I must tell you a story, though. Funny story. I hope you'll oblige. Way back in Singapore during our first term, this goes back to the year 1990, so we're only in our second year in Singapore. And I must say, the first home we lived in, we rented the first two years. Second home we lived in, we rented the next two years. And whenever that home would need some type of repair, our landlord had a handyman that he would call upon, and that handyman would come to our home. First time I met this handyman, he jumped from the front patio, reached up and grabbed my roof, and literally pulled himself up, threw his leg over, and climbed up on the roof because he had to reset the antenna. He was rather strong. In fact, he was a professional bodybuilder on the side, and his name was Eric Chan. Eric and I got to know one another I was fascinated by his passion for bodybuilding and weightlifting. Not that I was able to do it myself, but that's another story. But as he'd come to our home, we'd get better acquainted and we'd establish a relationship. And after we moved into the second home, he was called upon to come over and help install ceiling fans and wall fans. And it was just after Thanksgiving in November of 1990. And my wife said to him, Eric, 
Why don't you take a break? I've got some leftovers here, some turkey, some apple pie. Would you be interested? This guy knew how to eat. He said, sure. He sat down at our dining table, and Mary fixed up some leftovers. And as Eric sat there, it was a golden opportunity for me. And he was wide open to hear the gospel. I went all the way through, brought him right up to that point where you draw the net, and I chose not to. I said, Eric, would you do me a favor? He said, what is it? I said, would you allow me to come to your home tonight and sit down just as I've sat here with you, with you and Molly, your wife? Don't tell her about me. Just let me come over. He said, sure, come on over. We'll be finished eating around 7.30. I said, it's a deal. So I went over that night, and uh, when I got in, I said, hello, my name's Pat Delaney. She said, I knew something was up, because when I walked in the door, I saw my husband's tool bag, and there were all these papers in there, and I asked him, I said, who have you been talking to today? He said, I was talking, I met a lifesaver today. Well, folks, I've never been a lifesaver, and I'm not one now. My passion is for souls, but I've never been a lifesaver. Let me ask you, are you passionate for souls this morning? Before you and I can ever hope to glorify God, we must know we were created on purpose after trusting Christ as our Savior. And we must realize we were recreated for a divine mission or purpose. But if you're like me, I think you understand and agree. Our frustration in this life often comes when we fail to discover or fail to remember our purpose for being here. We grow weary when we become overwhelmed with our work, burdened by our domestic responsibilities, stressed out by exams at school, weakened by poor health. Therefore, we must pursue afresh our very significant responsibility, which is simply determining what is God's will for my life? What is my purpose in being here? That first term in Singapore, 89 to 93, I was planning a church from scratch. Winning souls on my own, discipling each one, growing a young family of children. It was stressful. I developed panic attacks. Quite a challenge. So we came back and did a six-month furlough, and right in the middle of that furlough, October of 1993, one of our supporting churches in the Midwest the pastor, getting close to retirement, proposed an R&R conference. He invited other preachers, missionaries, to come and spend a few days, rest, relax, refresh spiritually. His pastoral staff was going to minister to us. He said, man, let's go. We did. And one of the sessions in that R&R conference, the assistant pastor, who was a certified nuthetic counselor, presented to us the truth about 
what anesthetic counseling was. The idea of confronting man's sinful needs with the word of God. And as I listened to him and as I wrapped my mind around, this is the essence of discipleship. Presenting God's people with the word of God. I went to him with my own need. I told him about my struggle with these panic attacks and what it was doing to me. He said, Pat, can I ask you a question? I said, by all means. He said, Pat, each time you have a panic attack, does that bring glory to God? Brother Doyle, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It opened my mind to how I would respond to my own personal challenges in life. My friend, whatever your need is today, the Bible is God's mind on everything. He has the answer for every need you have. I have. Whether it's a panic attack, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, God addresses it through this beloved book. And that's why we must love it. That's why we must read it, memorize it, meditate it, and hide its word in our heart. Amen? Whatever you're doing in life, whether it's as a homemaker, an engineer, a teacher, an accountant, a soldier, a student, God has called you to fulfill a significant responsibility. You see, you're not just a homemaker. You're God's servant to the family. You're not just an engineer or an accountant. You're God's instrument in the company. You're not just a student. You're God's representative among your classmates. So is it possible to change diapers, crunch numbers, and score good grades to the glory of God? Absolutely, yes. As long as you know and you are striving to fulfill God's purpose for your life. You see, knowing God's will, fulfilling your purpose in life, does not begin with you. It begins with God. And it's not about what I want to do in my life, but rather, what does God want to accomplish through this life that belongs to him? Why? Because once you're saved, your life belongs to the Lord. Paul put it this way in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. For me... The most challenging statement of our Lord in this prayer of John 17 is found in the middle of verse 4. Notice what Jesus says. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The very last statement from the lips of our Savior while on the cross. It is Finished, to tell us die. That was the shout of a victor 
not a victim. And we're born to live, but Christ was born to die. He came with the express purpose of dying for our redemption. And let me close with this application. Dear friend, when the curtain closes on your life, will you be able to say these words? I finished the work which God gave me to do. No doubt, there are many people on earth who are like the man in the gospel story who began to build but didn't finish his work. And certainly, there are many who begin to serve the Lord in the local church, but they resign for this and that reason and every other reason. But dear friend, one day in the not-too-distant future, a new day will dawn, and the shadows will flee away, and we will find ourselves in the presence of God Almighty all of eternity. At that day, the Lord will show us his original purpose for our life, our career, our character, and it's my prayer as we stand before him that our lives will match his original plan and purpose from this book. So I close with this question. Is your desire to know and do God's will for your life? Is your desire to know and do God's will for your life? Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. You said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. I'll be with thee whithersoever thou goest. And O oh God, there could be no greater experience in life than to know and do your will in bringing you glory on this earth. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, let me ask you this morning, dear friend, I don't know you, but God does. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out by name. I'm not going to draw any attention to you. That's not my desire. But I care about you, and I know God cares far more. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and no one's looking around, and I ask you this morning, if life for you did end today, are you 100% sure you'll spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven? No greater question than that. If you're not sure about that, I sure want to pray for you. No one else is looking, and if you're not sure where you'll spend eternity, without anyone else looking, would you just slip your hand up and let me know, and I'll pray for you. Anybody like that here? Sure, I'll pray for you. Let me ask you this. Maybe you're a believer this morning. You've, you've settled it all, and you know that you're bound for heaven. But is your life bringing God glory? Are you busy about glorifying God? in your work, in your schooling, in your neighborhood. If you're here this morning and God spoke into your heart and you see there's a real need for change because God wants your life to bring him glory and you want me to pray for you that it will, 
again, without anyone else looking, would you just raise your hand? Let me see it, and I'll remember you in prayer. Thank you. You can put it down. Anyone else? Yep, I see it. Let me close this service in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tender hearts. You know which one. The Bible says you know our down-sitting, our uprising. You see our thoughts afar off. Thank you so much for your intimate awareness of who I am. God, I pray for one who is not sure where or what awaits for eternity. Lord, for this one, I pray that you would draw this soul to yourself preciously, giving a great understanding of salvation by grace through faith alone. Lord, for the rest who would raise their hand and say, I know there's more I can do to bring God glory. God, I need your help. Lord, you know our hearts. I pray that you would bring strength, courage, the ability, the desire to make our lives count for Christ. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of your Son, so well presented for us in John 17. Would you now at this time help us to muse and meditate a little bit more on what you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.